Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you through the show. We're in lockdown still, so we're recording remotely, but we're getting quite used to it now. And we're delighted to have an excellent guest with us, Perry Yateman, who's head of corporate at Save the Children US. Perry, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. Looking forward to chatting about your role and getting your perspective on all the latest news stories, which we'll discuss with my co-host, Frank Washcott. Um, How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing okay. Hanging in there. Thanks for having me on. It's good to have you on. Uh, continues to be busy weeks, doesn't it, to say the least. Uh, plenty, plenty to write about and plenty of content to produce. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So uh, once we've spoken to Perry, we'll talk about some of that news. We'll talk about the heritage brands that are rebranding uh, in light of the racial injustice discussions uh, going on in society. So we'll, we'll dig into that. We'll talk about agency holding company statements on diversity, which uh, have been forthcoming this week. And uh, we'll find out about agencies and diversity because we've been doing some work on that. Um, Ketchum and Porto Novelli, some two Omnicom firms, they've combined in another European territory. We'll find out what's going on there. An interesting $6 million RFP in California on the anti-smoking front. And some fascinating people moves this week as well. We'll find out who's uh, on the move during lockdown. And finally, we'll talk about the Girl Scouts because they've launched a media brand called Circle Around. So loads going on. But let's talk to you first, Perry. First of all, let's just find out what that role. I mean, I remember actually when I first joined PR Week, um, you were on the cover, I think, of the issue when I sort of came through the door and when you were at Craft. So, um, and you've had various roles over the years, but now you're head of corporate at Save the Children US. Just talk us about what head of corporate means and what what's involved in that role. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit, um, you know, it's really exciting to kind of have. Uh, switch sides, if you will. So for years, I was really talking to companies about how they could truly define a purpose, live a social mission, and make it real, more more than a CSR activity. So it's really exciting now to kind of put my money where my mouth was and say, you know, corporates have made a lot of progress. They're doing, they're much more sophisticated in how they're going about this. But on the NGO side, the partner side, we hadn't necessarily made the same amount of progress. So um, Save the Children is one of the best in the world at this. They had been doing very well. I was on the corporate council for seven years before I, I moved in-house. And as the head of corporate, what we're really trying to do is to create these kind of win-win-win partnerships with corporations. So, yes, it's about communication and cause marketing and PR, et cetera. Uh, but it's about a lot more than that, too. It's really about looking for that intersection between business and society where we help the world's most marginalized kids, both in the U.S. and abroad. And it's what companies can do and how we can help them really deliver on their mission while simultaneously reaching these kids. So, you know, we have a marketing team. They're awesome. Um, So my job is not just a comms job at all. It's very much about all of the various ways we can partner with corporations for win-win-wins. 
Yeah, we've been talking about that a lot at PR Week over the past couple of years, and we saw the Business Roundtable make their big statement last year, putting purpose on a on an equal footing with um, shareholder value. And we've talked a lot about things like purpose washing, you know, where companies just take some money and think that that's ticking the box. How do you forge really effective partnerships with corporations that go beyond that and really speak authentically to their mission and kind of add value, but also do good? Have you got any particular examples that really stand out? Well, I'll tell you about one of the big bets we're placing this year. So, you know, as you point out, it's been kind of a crazy time. I joined January 1st. So five and a half months in, you know, launched the new strategy, March 1. Ten days later, we're in, we're in shelter-in-place lockdown, um, immediately switching from strategic five-year plan, which is how I spent the first 60 days, into emergency response because we are a global humanitarian agency and we are a first responder for kids around the world. Um, and so it's, it's been a little crazy, but one of the big bets that we placed in that five-year strategy that we are sticking to because COVID and everything else that has happened has only made it more clear the work that needs to be done is, for example, in smallholder agricultural settings. So I'll walk you through the the thinking very quickly of how we landed here. We asked ourselves the question, if our sole mission is to reach the world's most marginalized kids, where are they? And millions and millions of them are in smallholder farms Um, both in Africa and Asia. The next question, um, where do we have something where our interventions are really proven to move the needle and make a lifelong difference for kids? Um, And we focus really in what we think of as some of the key social determinants of, of saving childhood, but also, and we can talk about it later, of equality, right? And specifically, we, we do hunger, we do health, we do education, which is what we're globally known for best. And we also do protection from harm, right? So where the kids are, what we naturally do, where we have expertise. And if you look at my role, where are companies putting real money? So not whitewashing, not just trying to scratch the surface, but actually trying to fundamentally change the business model. And Let's just take chocolate, for example, because you, as you point out, you came in, you know, thank you for the, for the opportunity to be on the cover um, and while I was at Kraft. And so Kraft was the largest branded buyer of chocolate at the time that I was there. You can't have a chocolate business without cocoa. Cocoa uh, production was in decline. There was not going to be a next generation of cocoa farmers, potentially. And so this is a real business issue. Tied to that, Harkin Engel came out with a report, clearly child labor was an issue on these farms, et cetera. So when one of the big bets we're placing is partnering with companies, so Mondelez, Mars, you know, Cargill, um, all of the big ag companies, partnering with them on a mission-critical thing. They need cocoa. The kids that are doing this labor, unfortunately, on, you know, uh, in these areas are some of the most marginalized. So we're trying to create a holistic plug and play model whereby we really, what we call save childhood in these settings. Now that is a win for the companies because this is something they clearly want to address but have not been successful at yet. They're putting hundreds of millions of dollars. I think, you know, Mars has a half a billion commitment. Mondelez had a several hundred million dollar commitment. Hershey, everybody has very large 
business commitments, not just the foundation, but the business, the heart of the business needs to deal with this. They need to figure out how to do it. It's falling down on implementation on the ground. Strategies are great, not happening fast enough on the ground. That's what we do. So it's a win for the company. It's a win for Save the Children because we get to take our interventions to more of these kids. But it's also a win for the kids, which is what we need to ultimately be in it for. And that's the proof of the pudding. So long answer, but that that work is really moving forward. And we're really excited to see how it plays out over the next five years. Yeah, for sure. You used to run the Craft Foundation when you were there. So from that point of view, what's the secret to making a foundation effective and not just ticking a box and really doing something that that does good, but also adds value to the business, right? Because good business can be profitable and effective business. In fact, that's it's only really going to work if it is. So looking back with your hat on there and looking at it now from where you are now, what, what would you say, what would your advice be to foundations and, 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 and the CSR part of corporations? Well, I think there, there are no end of good, of good causes out there. Let's be clear. And a lot of wonderful um, organizations that are really um, intent on addressing the, the needs and issues. But for me, the number one, the starting point has to be, Play with the full force of the business. You know, at Kraft Foods, when I was there, we had a hundred million in cash and kind. And let's be clear, a lot of that was product um, to address whatever we were going to address as the foundation. Now, if we had decided to go after the arts or we had decided to go after early childhood education or whatever, we might have made a dent in that. But the heart of our business, the 40, what is it? It's like 25 billion we spent each year in procurement. You know, that was not being spent as an education company, right? And so, or as an arts and leisure company. So focusing on the heart of the business and where you really can lever all of the C-suite roles. Think about it. If you are a food company and you decide to address the two forms of malnutrition, hunger on the one side, obesity on the other, which is what we decided to do at Kraft, you really then can lever every one of the C-suite roles. You can look at HR. We've got a lot of talent that could have worked food scientists and R&D and delivery systems, et cetera, that could have made progress in that space. We have product that we can use. We have distribution. We have sales and marketing training. We have a ton of things that could help, right? We can do advocacy. So for me, the number one thing is line up your CSR with the heart of your business, right? Which is why when we're talking egg, we're talking to the seed producers, we're talking to the growers, we're talking to the processors, and we're talking to the end users, because that's who has a vested interest, that's who's willing to go big, that's who has to actually see change in order for them to be successful. So it's also about looking at a self-interested investment. For a long time, I think NGOs, um, you know, kind of poo-pooed companies because they were like, oh, they're just doing this for them. Well, I say, yippee-yay-yay if they're doing it for them, because if there is a clear, transparent reason for them to be engaged, you've got a much better chance of them investing big and in investing long. And the types of issues we're trying to address are not going to happen in a year. They're going to take five years. They're going to take 10 years. They're going to take a generation. So we need actors playing with us that are really committed at a meaningful way. And that's both about intent, about resources, people, time, money, all of it. 
Yeah, for sure. And then the shareholder value comes in and it's a win-win, like you said, sir. Absolutely. You talk, obviously, the supply chain and you're talking about some of the most, the poorest areas of the world, but there's incredible poverty within the U.S. as well amongst young people and kids. What are you doing there at Save the Children and how are you um, getting corporates involved in helping those big problems that, that, you know, really fundamental to the development of young people and really they don't get a chance if they they can't even eat and, and have a full stomach they can't learn and that and then they're, they're behind from the start aren't they so is, are there any examples of in, interesting corporate activations you're doing in that uh, realm well i will give you an example i'll give a shout out to um you know a friend of mine someone i'm sure that you um have known from his various uh, agency roles but so alan vandermolen recently took over um as the uh, cco at sc johnson and you know i was maybe 90 days into my job i think he was like five um mm-hmm. and you'll you'll realize that sc johnson is um obviously their products the heart of you know kind of cleaning and hand washing etc is very important um, in terms of what was going on uh, at COVID. So Alan and I connected and he said, yeah, we, you know, and I was just reaching out to say, hey, congratulations. And he said, yeah, we need to talk. Um, and so we jumped on the phone and 10 days later, we had a global partnership that was launched around education for, you know, uh, hygiene, cleanliness, hand washing, et cetera. And it, it, you know, literally we could have spent in the past, like kind of, Pre-COVID times, we might have spent 10 days, honestly, you know, negotiating the press release. And instead, we actually went from first outreach all the way to announcement in 10 days of a global partnership that did leverage several different things at the heart of their business. Now, I tie that to um, the U.S. So that's a U.S. company doing that globally. We are, Save the Children is one of the few, if not the only, INGO, international um, nonprofit, that has always worked or worked for decades in the United States. And our focus is on rural poor, right? This is exactly where, so there's a lot of groups that work urban. We work in the rural communities across America. And as you say, inequity begins in childhood, as does, by the way, racism. So we can, we can talk about that as well. But our focus is really about trying to provide the basic needs of these kids in rural America in order to have them ready for kindergarten and then have them ready at at proficiency in third grade. Because the research indicates if they are on track at those two points, ready to begin kindergarten and ready, you know, mastering the skills needed at third grade level, they have a whole different trajectory throughout their life. So our focus really is on those four things I talked about. It ties predominantly to education. But as you say, you can't learn if you're hungry, right? You can't learn if you're unhealthy. And you can't learn if you've been harmed, whether that's emotionally or physically. So we focus on all of those areas in order to help the child get a good start in life. Um, And that's really our focus. And we do that across uh, seven or eight states in the United States. And then we advocate in in many, many more for child's rights. We were the original child's rights organization, and we still are the leading child's rights organization around the world, including in the United States. Yeah, we could talk about this for for a long time and love to, but um, we are limited for time. Just to finish off this segment, talk a little bit about, obviously, we've been through the covid we're still going through the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown. And then we've had the, the racial injustice events of recent weeks as well. 
as a non-profit one how how have you been impacted in that and and, and what what's your involvement been in it and two you know is does it make it more difficult as a non-profit with you know in getting donations or getting attention because there's so many other big problems in the world you know i i would never want to say that we are we are lucky that we are an emergency response and global humanitarian aid organization with a big footprint in the united states but in truth um i know a lot of my um friends and colleagues working in other NGOs are are struggling way more than we are. Um, And that's because we work at these root causes. We work on things like hygiene and health around the world. We are seen as a leader in these spaces. Um, And so we have seen, as we often do when, when an emergency happens, and of course, this is an unprecedented emergency, and it's an emergency that we're not only helping with, like a, a hurricane or typhoon or whatever, but we're also living through, right? So it's it's a very different thing. But I got to say, I am so proud of uh, of the work that the entire agency has has done. We are those frontline heroes. I, I, not me. Let's be clear. Not me. But many, many of the Save the Children workers are those frontline heroes that are delivering services in the toughest places, including refugee camps um, and, uh, and a lot of other environments of, of similar nature. You know, when I think about it, um, I think the fact that we landed the strategy on March 1st, that was great because I got a chance to really think about what would we do in quote unquote normal times to take things forward. And then COVID hit. And now, of course, um, racial and social injustice um, is also um, very much in frame. And what it's done, and, you know, Steve, Frank, you, you, you know this. Any listener knows this about me already. If I'm all about speed. I'm about make it happen. You know, talk is never going to be enough for me. I want to see it move forward. And so the beauty, if there is beauty, silver linings in this, and I hope we never unlearn what we're now learning, is that you can really get focused when things are this crazy. And so I think that's step one, I would say to any leader and what I've taken away and really tried to help my team and save the children with, which is focus on what matters most. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Just put aside the small things, move forward. If you've got an 80% solution to a real problem, take it forward. You can adjust as you go. You've got to embrace the whole human. I mean, it's so important. We've learned, right? Every one of my team has now seen my daughter, my pets, you know, my glasses, no makeup, no I think we've just been hearing them. Right. Hearing we're the dog, yeah. We're just, we're just in it, right? And so yeah, yeah, I've, got, yeah. I've got two dogs and a cat. So I've got the whole <laughs> an athlete. And then the other thing is speed and agility, right? Be clear about the outcome, but you've got to learn to be much less rigid about how you get there because the way we're delivering education today it's not the way we would have delivered it pre-COVID, right? I mean, we're doing radio programming, you know, you know, delivery by whole different. We're not taking materials directly to the home in every case anymore. So I think those are the things I would say that actually will prove, particularly that idea of speed and agility and focus on outcomes. I think that's going to actually prove really helpful to the entire agency and to all of us that learn these lessons in these times doesn't make it easier in the execution, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make anything easier. But I do think there are some things that we can really benefit by, by um, embracing yeah. and keeping. 
I think you're absolutely right. Really great advice. And uh, I think we've all learned that, that it's necessity is the mother of invention. And we've all been creative and innovative to respond to this. So uh, great to hear about that. Thank you, Perry. We'll get you involved in the discussions on news stories. Frank, um, big story this story this week about various brands having to have a, a long, hard look at themselves. And maybe they should have done this all uh, a few years ago. But um, talk us through that. We're talking like Uncle Ben's, Aunt Jemima's and others. Yeah, a lot of them have been legacy grocery staples. Uh, and so the first one to announce it was doing a complete rebranding, uh, changing the name and changing the imagery on its packaging uh, was Aunt Jemima. And they are owned by Quaker Oats, which in turn is owned by PepsiCo. Um, but they uh, announced that they were redoing everything yesterday morning and they were quickly followed by Uncle Ben's, which uh, also said it's going to, quote unquote, evolve uh how its brand looks and uh so uncle ben's it's important to point out said that it, they were not following up Aunt Jemima. they were had been doing this for a while and examining it and they already had it um in they already had the process going when Aunt Jemima made uh their announcement but they were both um also followed by other brands like cream of wheat um that uh, its imagery on the box had been of a, a black chef since the since the late 1800s. Um, and Mrs. Butterworth is also uh, examining how it's going to evolve its brand. So again, these are four grocery good brands that are, you know, known to shoppers of all kinds of people, national brands. Um, and in response to all of the discussion of uh, racial injustice going on in society now prompted by uh, the death of George Floyd, these four brands are looking at looking at how they can sort of bring their brand up to date with the times and uh, make it something a bit more accepting, I think. Yeah, I, best, I guess there's two ways of looking at this. You can be cynical and you can say, well, why are they only looking at it now? And, you know, they should have done this years ago. And what's what, what's taken them so long? Or you could say, well, actually, this is real change, right? And we've been asking for things like this for a long time, and these are totally outdated, and they are actually changing them. So that's the sort of two ways of looking at it. Where, what do you think, Frank? I, I, of course, would never fall on the cynical end of things, but no, I, no. I have to admit that, that, that for years... I've I've looked at some of these brands like Aunt Jemima and, and Mrs. Butterworth and, and kind of just went, eh, that's a little old fashioned, you know, as a nice way of putting it. So yeah. uh, I think it's good. I, I think it's a shame in a way that it took a, a major event like George Floyd's death and the protests that have followed for them to take this step. I do think it's good they are finally taking this step. But yeah. um I do think they could have done it earlier. Yeah, and uh, I guess the, the follow-up to that is what brands are, are we going to be looking at, you know, in the coming weeks, right? Are the Washington Redskins finally going to change their name? You know, what what, what other brands should we be looking at in, in this respect? Is that, that's, a, that's another great example because, you know, the, the Redskins have been so stubborn about changing any part of their branding you know, whether it's the helmet logo or anything like that for, for decades. So I think that it's definitely going to be one of them in the spotlight. Yeah, Perry, you used to work at a big food company and you, and, and you worked at Unilever before that. What, what's your observations on this? I don't think you had any specific brands like that at Kraft at that time, but as an expert in that sector, what, what's your observations viewing from afar? 
Well, you know, I think the thing with consumer brands, um, for a long time, we kind of thought as as the companies that, you know, we owned the brands. And then I think we became a little bit uh, more nuanced and intelligent about the fact that actually the consumer, um, the, the people who actually buy and use our brands in, in many ways own our brands, right? And so I think it's about staying consistent with, you know, who is it that we are serving with these with these products and services? And I think, you know, um, We've clearly gotten out of step. It's not unusual for a brand to do an update. You know, I think back to, um, you know, Betty Crocker did it. um, You know, Kentucky Fried Chicken did it. We did it with Mr. Peanut at some point. Um, So evolving the brand imagery is one thing. What I'm going to be really curious about is what do you call Aunt Jemima if you don't call it Aunt Jemima that keeps that brand equity that, that actually migrates that brand equity that those are the, so it's to me, it's gotta be more than the imagery, right? There's got, if that's yeah. really identified that way, I think it's going to be very interesting. And to add to your brand list to watch, I, I think I read Lando Lakes is also removing the Indian in the middle yeah. of their on a pack. Right. So I think we, this is by no means the end of this. I think it's the beginning of a lot of change in order for these brands to be, you know, kind of concurrent with the times um, and with the with the social values of those who are really the owners, which are the users. Yeah, that's a good point. You've got the brands like Land of Lakes, where they were just using inappropriate imagery, where they don't need to change the brand name. And then you have a brand like Aunt Jemima's, where really you've got to change the name, haven't you? I mean, otherwise it's still you know, a racist stereotype. Um, and it's not... Yeah, it's not a case of saying, well, we shouldn't have black people on packaging because that obviously would be racist, too. It's just we shouldn't have stereotypical images of black and and, and other BIPOC people. So on, on the packaging. So that's uh, yeah, that is going to be an interesting story to watch. And, and you know, let it's an example of real change happening. So, look. Um, silver linings to uh, it's a very difficult situation. Um, change is happening. And moving on to the next topic, which is in the same um, ballpark, if you like, where talking about agency holding companies, Frank, and uh, their statements on diversity and, um, uh, you know, Fleischmann Hillard appointing its first uh, head of diversity and inclusion, etc. Talk us through that. Yeah, let me take them apart one at a time. So, of course, Fleischmann, Fleischmann Hiller this week named Emily Graham as its first uh, chief diversity and inclusion officer. Emily, of course, is well known throughout the industry. Um, important to note, she's going to be, re- be reporting straight up to the president and CEO, John Saunders, and the chief operating officer, J.J. Carter. Uh, so she's responsible for really accelerating diversity throughout the a- agency, really making it a top priority and really making sure that there's uh, accountability in hiring and inclusion and, and things of that nature. Um, um, Fleischman is, of course, of course, a part of Omnicom. And a few weeks ago, Omnicom CEO John Gren really issued a, a kind of profound statement about, you know, deeper awareness about racism after the Central Park incident. Um, and and that was when Christian Cooper, the bird watcher, who was an Omnicom employee, uh, was involved in that incident in Central Park that uh, that went viral. So um, that's been Omnicom. WPP has just said this morning, or I'm sorry, yesterday morning, that's Wednesday morning for our listeners, uh, that they are making a three-year anti-racism pledge of $30 million, um, that they're going to make donations, offer free services, and they are going to look into shoring up their own 
diversity metrics as well. Um, they're not the only ones. You're hearing this from agencies across the industry where their leaders have issued statements about whether it's financial backing of organizations that promote diversity and inclusion or initiatives that they are doing internally to increase the diversity of their own staff. Um, so you, you're hearing it from firms far and wide about how they're trying to take on this topic and, and really show some results in terms of, of increasing their own diversity. Yeah, WPP's made statements, Publicis has as well. Um, but I was a little surprised to find that Fleischmann Hiller didn't have a, a head of diversity and inclusion in this day and age. I've got to be honest, not that that is the be all and end all. And often one of the criticisms has been that that, that agencies appointed a head of DNI, and they, again they thought they would tick in the box. And mm-hmm. clearly, it's yes. more than that. It's in the culture, isn't it? So, for, Frank, what? what were you surprised as well that, that they've only just now appointed their first head of DNI? You know, it's interesting in that I, I was and I wasn't. I was when it came to the actual position itself. Um, a couple of years ago, though, I, I did an agency business report interview with John Saunders, the CEO of Fleischman, and, and he really went out of his way to talk about the different ways in which Fleischman uh, has made diversity and inclusion a priority. And it was clearly a priority to him when he was talking about it in the interview. And, uh, you know, one thing he noted was that while they have done a lot of these initiatives and they have made DNI a priority, they, they had not talked about it externally as much as maybe they should have. Um, so I was surprised that there wasn't somebody in that office itself, but, um, I, I do think that they had been doing a number of diversity and inclusion initiatives even before uh, Emily was promoted. Yeah, we've done a big analysis of this um, from our agency business report data. And by the time this podcast is published, we should be able to have that analysis alongside. Um, Perry, you, you worked in the agency sector back in the day at Burson Marsteller and Shandwick. Do you think they have made enough progress on that front in terms of both overall numbers uh, to represent the wider population, but most importantly, at the C-suite level, which which really does still seem quite white. Yeah, so, so Steve, I will be very interested in reading your report when it comes out tomorrow. Um, but my, my, my quick take would be, no, none of us have made enough progress. I'm not sure that I can point to a single major organization, agency, or corporate that's made, quote-unquote, enough progress. Um, and I think that we... You know, I really believe that the time for talk is is over for years. You know, it's been 20 years we've been talking about it being a pipeline issue. Well, if we were serious about it 20 years ago as a pipeline issue, we've had plenty of time to actually fix the pipeline and have more people at the top. So I believe that there are inherent biases. And, and I don't mean these are not evil people. I just mean there are biases in the systems and processes the same way I've been talking about for decades with women it's the same with people of color and we've got to address it. And the time for talk is over. I'm really not going to care about more statements as much as I am going to care about seeing what actually happens. Yeah, that's uh, well said and very true. And by the way, I include PR week in that. And, you know, we, we, we have a lot of work to do on that front as well. Very conscious of that too. And um, progress has got to be made on all fronts. I think the situation has improved in terms of uh, gender diversity in uh, the upper echelons of agencies, but not so much in terms of ethnic diversity. So look out 
piece. It's going to be a fascinating piece of analysis and uh, maybe not particularly great reading, but uh, it's, it is what it is. It is the state of play at the moment. Frank, talk us through Ketchum and Porto Novelli. They've combined another office in Europe. What, what, tell us about it and whether it, it's got any wider implications. Well, Ketchum and Porter Novelli are integrating their operations in Brussels, which, of course, is a big public affairs uh, and regulatory center in Europe. Um, and they're going to continue to use both agency brands while operating from the same office they already share in Brussels. Um, they're going to start integrating immediately. Uh, Peter Otten, who is Ketchum's Brussels MD, is going to lead the combined business as MD. And Luke Michaels, who is an acting MD at Porter Novelli in Brussels, is going to serve as the financial director. Um, so the statements from both firms are pretty much what you would expect. You know, they're both saying this is going to strengthen their offerings um, in the EU capital and, and you know, not take away from anything and not take away from either of the brands. Um, but it is interesting in which you are seeing two firms in, in the Omnicom Public Relations Group, which is still searching for a new CEO, by the way, uh, deciding to bring things together uh, in at least one market in Europe. Yeah, I think David Gallagher, who used to be at Ketchum, has now uh, got a, a, a group role at Omnicom Public Relations Group in Europe, hasn't he? So, although he's American, he's been based in London for some time. Um, yeah, Brussels is the home of the European Parliament, so it's up there with kind of DC, London, Brussels, and um, never forget if remember if it's Shanghai or Beijing in China, where real four big global hubs of uh, public affairs and, and government relations. Um, so, yeah, important uh, role. We'll, we'll see whether that uh, presages more combining of uh, firms of, of Omnicom firms. Um, there's a big RFP about to come out in California, Frank, $6 million on an anti-smoking campaign or, or a, a renewal of a, an RFP because it already exists, doesn't it? Well, it's, it depends how finely you read the fine print, but um, what that's they're what putting you, out. That's what we got you for, Frank. Yes, yes. Well, thank you. My line, yeah. by the way, was it not? We don't want to spoil our readers. Giving your fans but, uh, what, what they want. <laughs> so it's it's California's Department of Public Health, and they're uh, putting out an RFP next Tuesday is the plan. Of course, all dates are tentative, uh, but it's going to be a statewide tobacco control PR campaign. And as anybody who knows who covers this stuff, the California state accounts often have a, a really high budget. Now, this one has a, a potential total budget of uh, $6 million, potentially for five years. That's over a million dollars a year. Um Golan Los Angeles is the incumbent on it. The California Department of Public Health previously had a, a long relationship with Allison and Partners. Um, but, you know, it's another example of, of these, these very lucrative state government contracts on things like anti-smoking, anti-drunk driving, things like that. So uh, if you are interested in this RFP, it's going to be out publicly uh, next week. And it is the California Department of Public Health that you should be following up with if you would like some more information. Rather than bugging you, Frank, is, is that a subject? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to, I wouldn't want to single anybody out. Um, <laughs> that it, it is interesting, the details that they want uh, from agencies who are planning to pitch from this. And so firms must have a full service office in California that's been in business since at least 2015. And that office has to have gross billings of $2 million for two of the past three years. 
Uh, and they also need to show that their agency has no conflicts of interest with tobacco, e-cigarettes, cannabis, or any sort of industry like that. So mm. some interesting details there. Very interesting. Yeah, these are interesting accounts because, you know, there's, there's a, a school of thought that this is just a waste of public money and we shouldn't be spending money on things like this. Uh, but when, when the money uh, dries up and they stop spending, guess what? Smoking rates go up. More people get uh, illnesses. The health service costs go up, and actually, there's a net loss there. Uh, Perry, as a seat, yeah, you know, for sure. a very experienced PR pro, it's almost like a, an argument for the for the, the discipline, isn't it? That uh, these are by doing great communications, you're actually in the long run saving money in in healthcare costs and, and whatever the the public service area it is. And it's important to, I think, defend the need for campaigns like this. I agree. In fact, it's, you know, we often do this kind of math when you're a development agency, right? Because you're saying if you actually look at the first, you know, thousand days nutritionally or brain development or early education, whatever, the payback for these types of interventions is just massive. So I think, you know, America, you know, you know, I spent a lot of my career overseas um, and America, we're just, I love how we are action oriented and make it happen, but we are just too short sighted when it comes to most of our social investments. Yeah, we didn't. Even I, get- I'd also add to that. I would, I would say that I think anybody who lives in New York is, is probably way too familiar with any of the anti smoking ads you see on TV. I mean, they are definitely effective. Well, they were. They were. Uh, and and, and they, they do because. When they show you the health problems that you can have if you continue to smoke, I mean, it. it let's just say it really gets your attention. Yes, yep. No, and when they stop running them, uh, smoking rates go up. So it, it works. It's for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Perry, I would have loved to have chatted about your time in Singapore, Moscow, London, but maybe for another edition of the podcast. But yeah, you've had a great career around the world as well. So. Um. As have some of these people, trying to do a segue there, Frank, into some interesting people moves this week. Talk us through them. Uh, So Rachel Horwitz um, has, uh, she has moved over to Google. She is well known uh, from uh, her time at Coinbase and really a number of Facebook top uh, Silicon Valley uh organizations and really you can tell on linkedin a very popular uh move and rachel's really well known uh throughout the industry for sure um few other ones um some sad news uh actually and that's that one of the uh best known uh entertainment pr executives um I'm blanking on her name, unfortunately. Nancy right Ryder? Nancy Ryder? Yes, Nancy Ryder has uh, passed away uh, after a battle with ALS. Of course, she was the founder of BWR. Uh, she's worked with clients, really well-known clients, such as uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, Leonardo DiCaprio, Michael J. Fox, who was actually her launch client uh, when she um, when she formed a consultancy years ago. Uh, so some really sad news out of Los Angeles on that one. BWR, of course, was absorbed by Burson Marsteller in 2010 and uh, since absorbed into the BCW entertainment practice. Yeah. And a new role for Ray Jordan. Yes, that's right. Um, Ray Jordan is going over to Moderna, uh, which is one of the companies that is working on a COVID-19 vaccine. 
but we, our readers will know him from uh, his previous work at Johnson & Johnson, and he's a, a real veteran of the pharma sector. And uh, one of our top red stories this week, so people have definitely been looking to see where Ray would end up. Okay, Doki, we've got one more topic. We're running a bit over, so let's make it a quick uh, discussion on the Girl Scouts. But I wanted to bring this one in, especially as we've got Perry with us. They've launched uh, a media brand called Circle Around, Frank. Just briefly tell us about that. Yeah, so what Circle Around is, uh, is basically it's a, it's a digital media brand that has a target audience of uh, a wide range of women. Uh, and it is trying to build on this gigantic alumni base, or I should say alumna base that the Girl Scouts have across the country, really 50 million people, which is you know astounding when you think about it. Uh, Rogers and Cohen PMK is helping them to launch it. Um, but it's it's a really interesting thing. you know for years we we covered this concept of brands becoming media brands as they did more content mm-hmm. and and the Girl Scouts really, you know, uh, jumping into this space with both both feet. Yeah. What was your take on this one, Perry? Is another incredibly well-known nonprofit that you know some of these brands have, have been having tough times, haven't they? Like the Girl Scouts and the and, and the Boy Scouts as well. Yep. Well, and I would I would separate. So I'm a former national board member of the Girl Scouts, so I am quite familiar with them. And I, I kind of went through all the way. I was their first, I think, national corporate funder under Unilever, work that later then got um, put together in the you know self esteem work uh, for women. And then we went in, you know, then I went on the board, and then I actually became a troop leader for my daughter. So I've seen it in a bunch of different ways. You know, I say kudos because the truth is. Um, we've got to start taking risks as NGOs, right? And it's hard because you don't always get funded for failure, right? And and so they, they tend to be more risk averse. But when you think about where the revenue comes from for Girl Scouts, right? It actually is the membership dues, which they try to keep really low so that they can appeal to like 20 bucks or less to appeal to all uh, girls in America, and then it's also about all of the um, various and sundry, like the badges and the materials that troop leaders and, and others need uh, in order to run the programming, which is really which is really first class as a leadership development model. So they've been hard hit, I'm sure, because troops don't meet in, in the same way virtually. Right. So they've had to pivot probably pretty aggressively. And I love that they're looking at a social enterprise that would really focus on levering their heritage and history and being a trusted, credible resource, but take them in a new direction and a new model. I, I think it's probably their first actual paid for venture um, that's that's wholly owned. Um, and I think it's great. Yeah, no, I agree. They've got to modernize their brands like any others. And, you know, I know the Boy Scouts have a heritage, you know, which is has been under some scrutiny for its sort of colonial and imperialist past, certainly in the UK with the Boy Scouts. So they have to look at that just like any other brand and, and update themselves and modernize. So, uh, you know, well played to the Girl Scouts for doing that. Perry, it's been an absolute pleasure um, chatting to you. Could have gone on for ages. Um, so continued good uh, fortune with all the work you're doing. Save the children. Fantastic stuff and really important. And it's great to catch up with you. Hey, friend, thanks so much. It was really fun. Take care. Yeah. Stay safe. Yeah, Andrew and Frank, always a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, we will uh, look out for that analysis piece that you're going to edit away at this afternoon after the show <laughs> on the agency diversity. A uh, couple of uh, customer service things. Our Purpose Awards, you've got just 
A few days left now, and this is the final deadline, 22nd of June on Monday. So if you've got a few um, entrants you want to get into that, your best work, the case studies, individuals that you want to uh, get some awareness for, the Purpose Awards is the place to do it. The big PR Week Awards virtual event is going to be on the 30th of July, and uh, it's going to be very exciting. PR Week Convene, our big conference that would have been in Chicago, that's going to be virtual from October 14th to 15th and uh, our 40 under 40 and hall of fame events are also virtual check out our website for more details on those but that's all we've got time for we'll see you next time on the pr week